the History Channel original podcast. History This Week, May 20th, 2004. I'm Sally Helm. Around 3 p.m., Brandon Mayfield walks out of a courtroom in Portland, Oregon. He's a lawyer, so this is something he's done plenty of times before. But today is different. About two weeks earlier, Mayfield was arrested by the FBI because they thought they had his fingerprint on a key piece of evidence in a terrorism investigation. Back in March, almost 200 people were killed in a series of train bombings in Madrid. Fingerprint. That might sound to you like damning evidence that Mayfield was involved in this attack. But by this afternoon in May, that key evidence has fallen apart. The Spanish authorities now say that the fingerprint belongs to someone else. And so, after sitting in a detention center for about two weeks, Mayfield is free. Someone brings his civilian clothes to the courtroom, slacks, belt, a blue button-down shirt. He gets to walk out the regular courtroom door, down the public elevator, and into the building's foyer, where sunlight is streaming in from the street. On the steps, Mayfield is greeted by his family, who have been desperately trying to get him released, telling anyone who will listen that Mayfield's fingerprint can't be on that piece of evidence. He hasn't even been out of the country in the past decade. He gives a statement to the press, thanking God and his family and friends for supporting him through this, quote, harrowing ordeal. And then he gets to go home. He walks by an engraving carved into a low wall outside the courthouse, which reads, The boisterous sea of liberty is never without a wave. Today, a case of mistaken identity. Why did the FBI arrest the wrong man? And how did this case change forensic science for good? It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. It's a Thursday morning in March in a busy train station in a suburb of Madrid. Students and office workers begin their commute to the center of the city, not knowing that in the train car with them is a backpack filled with explosives. At 7.37 a.m., one of the trains nears the Atocha interchange, and a bomb explodes, ripping the steel walls of the train car, causing immediate casualties. The next minute, two more detonate. And just a few seconds later, more bombs explode on another train a few hundred yards from the station. In all, 10 bombs go off that morning on trains. 191 people are killed. More than 1,000 others are injured. One rescue worker is quoted in the New York Times. So many bodies all along the railway lines, dead. Our country has never seen this. Outside Madrid's hospitals tonight, anxious relatives gather to offer mutual support and comfort. 
What happened today, it's shocking. Everyone at school was crying and we held a minute's silence. People in Madrid will tell you that they are used to living with a terrorist threat. But this attack was of such a different order, it's left people really very scared. The Spanish National Police immediately begin their investigation. This is just a few years after the terrorist attacks of September 11th, 2001. It's a few days before a Spanish national election. The country is on edge. But pretty soon, the police catch a break. A citizen's tip leads them to a stolen van parked near one of the train stations. Inside, they find a blue plastic bag full of detonators. And on that bag, they find fingerprints. One of those prints will become especially important. Latent print number 17. Prints from crime scenes are often called latent prints, meaning that they're invisible until they're made visible by some processing method. That's Simon Cole, a professor of criminology, law, and society at UC Irvine. He's studied the history of fingerprinting, and he's written about this case. He told us latent prints appear because the oils from your skin leave an invisible impression on surfaces you touch. Police can use powder to stick to those oils and make the print visible. That's dusting for fingerprints. In this case, the Spanish authorities used another common method called cyanoacrylate fuming. Cyanoacrylate is a chemical. What's commonly known as superglue, it's essentially a chemical that creates fumes. So you would put the latent print in, in like a chamber and open up this chemical and it would release fumes that would stick well to the oils. A plastic bag is not an ideal surface for lifting a fingerprint. But the Spanish authorities do find two fingerprints that they determine are good enough to analyze, including latent print number 17. They run it through their computer systems to see if there's a match and nothing. The authorities are pushing ahead with other parts of their investigation. They've found some signs that this attack was likely carried out by Islamic extremists, and they're chasing some leads. But they want to find out what they can from this print. So they send it off to Interpol, who shares it with other law enforcement agencies around the world, including the FBI. The FBI was thought to be the preeminent crime laboratory and fingerprint unit in the United States. By the way, we reached out to the FBI for this story, but they declined to comment. According to a report put out after the fact by the Inspector General's office at the Justice Department, when the FBI runs the print through their computer systems, they find a match. Actually, specifically, they find 20 possible matches. Now, a computer is the first step in fingerprint analysis, but the process also relies on human interpretation. Fingerprint experts have to sit down and analyze these possible matches. They're saying, do they look consistent? Do these two prints have the same features in the same place? And when the FBI looks at this computer-generated list of possible matches, there is one print in particular that sticks out. It seems to have a bunch of similar features, also known as points, to the print from the plastic bag. That examiner says, by God, we find 15 points, which was more than the number of points needed by FBI standards at the time to declare a match. That's Stephen Wax. In 2004, he was the federal public defender in the state of Oregon. He wrote a book about this case because he ends up getting personally involved. 
He'll defend Brandon Mayfield after he's arrested. And he told us, what happens next is where some of the trouble begins. In essence, the first examiner calls over one of his, uh, you know, buddy examiners and says, yo, I think I got a match here. What do you see? Yes, I have a match. Then they call over a third person. The third person also agrees. So now three examiners have said this print belongs to a young lawyer in Portland, Oregon, Brandon Mayfield. Mayfield's prints were on file because he'd been in the military and because he was arrested once when he was a teenager. That charge, by the way, was later dismissed. One trouble with this ID, Wax says, is that there's some power of suggestion involved. Those experts weren't doing a blind verification, where a second examiner looks at the print without knowing what conclusion the first examiner reached. Simon Cole agrees. It's potentially biasing to hear your colleagues say, I made an identification, could you please verify it? It biases you towards thinking this is probably an identification. In fact, the examiners later say in an affidavit that they have identified Mayfield's print with 100% certainty. Cole told us that language was common at the time. At that time, the dogma in the fingerprint discipline was that you only make 100% matches. And so if you're 99% certain, the idea was you were supposed to then call that inconclusive. Scientists and critics have said you you can't be 100% certain of anything. You shouldn't be saying that you're 100% certain. But at that time, saying 100% certain was routine in the fingerprint discipline. Armed with this fingerprint ID, the FBI immediately begins to investigate Mayfield. They put him under 24-hour surveillance. Now, in hindsight, Mayfield doesn't look like a perfect suspect. Why is Al-Qaeda orchestrating a bombing in Spain from Portland, Oregon, right? It just seems a little odd. And there's no evidence that Mayfield has recently been out of the country. But the FBI does find out some other information about him. It turns out that Brandon Mayfield converted to Islam. And his wife was of Egyptian origin. And he had represented a lot of Muslims in immigration cases in his law practice. So suddenly, in the context of the fingerprint, all of these things begin to seem suspicious. To get permission to search Mayfield's home and office, the FBI goes to what's called the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. This court was created in 1978 by FISA, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. Its job is to approve or deny warrants for surveillance of people who the U.S. government suspects of foreign spying or terrorism. And its proceedings are secret. This is not a court that's open to the public in any way, shape, or form. That's Stephen Wax again. And he said that in this case, the FBI... They asked for warrants to wiretap electronically surveil, and engage in surreptitious entries with no notice before or after into the Mayfield's house. No notice. So the agents go into Mayfield's home and office without his knowledge. They photograph documents. They collect DNA samples. They don't take the computers, but they copy them. Meanwhile, 
as the FBI is building their case, the Spanish National Police are still conducting their own investigation. When the FBI initially tells them they've found a match, they're surprised. The FBI sends over some more information about the fingerprint ID. The Spanish look at it. And then on April 13th, a few weeks after the FBI's initial identification of Mayfield, the Spanish National Police send a letter on the subject to the Spanish National High Court. Telling them that they disagree with the FBI's fingerprint analysis. And that letter was pretty shocking to me because in it, they not only say that they disagree, but that their comparison was negative. And just to make sure that there was no misunderstanding, they printed the word negative in the letter in all capital letters. This letter also gets sent to the FBI, and the FBI examiners take another look at the fingerprint, but they stand by their identification. In an email, an FBI agent working on the case writes that they talked to the lab and that the lab is, quote, absolutely confident that they have a match on the print. No doubt about it. That's followed by four exclamation points. The FBI has a meeting with the Spanish National Police to talk about all this. And there are conflicting messages coming out of that meeting. An FBI memo prepared the next day says the Spanish officials seemed satisfied with the Mayfield identification. The Spanish examiners say they never expressed agreement with the identification. They just said they'd take another look at the print. Some FBI people are like, well, we thought when they looked at it again, then they'd agree. It's all a little muddy. But around the beginning of May, the FBI learns that their investigation into Mayfield and this disagreement with the Spanish officials has been leaked to the European press. And that gets the FBI worried that Mayfield will get wind of the investigation and flee. There are heated internal discussions about what to do. Wax says the reality is... They recognized they did not have probable cause to arrest him and charge him with a crime. But they do decide to arrest him on something called a material witness warrant. That type of warrant allows law enforcement to hold someone in custody if they believe the person has important information about a crime and might flee or destroy evidence if they become aware of the ongoing investigation. These warrants have been controversial because they mean someone can be detained for weeks, even months, even though they're not charged with a crime. In this case, the FBI goes to a judge and asks for the warrant, citing, among other things, the 100% fingerprint match. They also say that after that meeting with the Spanish National Police in April, the Spanish officials had, quote, seemed satisfied with the FBI identification, which the Spanish National Police, as we've said, wouldn't necessarily agree with. But based on all this information, the judge approves the arrest warrant. And on May 6th... The team of FBI agents in the morning went to Brandon's law office in a little strip mall in Beaverton, Oregon, and uh, arrested him. For Brandon Mayfield, life is about to take a major turn. I, I was just dumbfounded, you know. At that point, I was just completely, utterly beside myself thinking, this can't be happening. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. 
You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. On March 11, 2004, Brandon Mayfield and his wife are sitting down for dinner when they hear news about a bombing in Spain. We were listening to this, and I, I just remember saying to her, I, I don't know who did this, but they have to be criminals of the highest order. The Mayfields are dismayed by this attack, but the bombing doesn't seriously interrupt their lives. Brandon is running a law office. His wife, Mona, works there as a paralegal. They have three kids, 15, 12, and 10. They attend a local mosque. Life is proceeding as normal, until about a month after the Madrid train bombings. In mid-April, the Mayfields start to notice strange things happening in their house. Mona comes home one morning to find the front door bolted. We almost never use the bolt. And she called me and said, Brandon, you know, did you bolt the the top lock on the front door. And I, I said, I said, no, I didn't. Mona looks around the house. Nothing seems amiss. So they forget about it. Until it happens again. There was no other explanation of how it could be bolted other than somebody was in our house. This time, Brandon says there are other signs too. The VCR lights are flashing, like maybe someone had turned off the electricity. The blinds are cracked in odd places. And in the middle of the carpet, there's a big footprint that's not theirs. We don't wear shoes in the the house. We take them off as a custom, like as a Muslim family. So this large shoe print must belong to someone else. Someone who has been in their house. Mayfield is not sure what's going on. Until on May 6th, there's a knock on his office door. Which is weird. People usually didn't come to his office without an appointment. And it kind of felt like annoyed because I had things to do. But he opens the door and sees two people in nondescript suits. They looked like they were Jehovah's Witness or Mormons or something, and that's actually what I thought they were. But then they identify themselves as FBI agents. Mayfield says he doesn't want to talk to them. But... At that point, they said, like, it's not an option. We have a warrant for your arrest. And they, they immediately proceeded to heavily, handily cuff and arrest me. They put him in a car and drive him to the courthouse. From that moment on, it just, it went from unbelievable, you know, bad to worse. When Mayfield arrives at the courthouse, it begins to become clear to him just how important this fingerprint evidence is and how potentially damning. He's taken before a judge, and at some point in that appearance, Brandon speaks up. I just couldn't help myself. I said, Your Honor, that's not my fingerprint. And if it is, and in my mind I was thinking, I know it's not, you know, I don't know how how it got there. 
But Mayfield is told that he can't get out on bail and will be staying in jail. The next day, Stephen Wax gets involved as one of Mayfield's lawyers. That was one of the most uh, unusual and, and difficult first meetings with a client that I have ever had. He says, picture it. Mayfield is a young lawyer, an honorably discharged Army veteran. He says he's innocent. He has nothing to do with this. And yet, the FBI says they have his fingerprint. As of May 2004, fingerprints were pretty much the gold standard. So I'm looking at this thinking, you know, my God, they, they've got his fingerprint. And, and have to tell Brandon, by God, they've got your fingerprint. I'm also in this position where I have to tell him that if indeed this is his fingerprint, he is going to be charged with a capital offense. He's going to be facing the death penalty. Wax says he was also thinking about another recent case where an American citizen had been arrested on a material witness warrant because of suspected connections to foreign terrorism. That person was later declared an enemy combatant, which meant that he could be held without access to a lawyer for an undefined period of time. The Supreme Court, by the way, ultimately rejected this practice. But at the time, it felt to Wax like a real possibility in this case. We went through with him contingency plans. What do you do, Brandon, if in the middle of the night tonight, they, whoever they are, come and take you out of this jail and take you to some place where you don't even know where you are. I mean, this was just surreal. As Wax and his team start to work on the case, there's a lot that they're up against. It was uh, one of the most intense two-week periods uh, of my legal career. Mayfield has explanations for some of the evidence against him. Like, in one of the searches after his arrest... The FBI finds on a family computer that someone has been looking up stuff about the Spanish rail system and Spain's largest airline. How does Mayfield explain that? One of the Mayfield kids had had a homework assignment, and I shook my head in dismay when I learned this back in 2004, because I had a son who had had a homework assignment where they were told, as were the Mayfield kids, pick a country and research that country online and plan a trip to the country. So one of the Mayfield kids had chosen Spain. The fingerprint evidence, though, that is not so easily explained away. And it is the key piece of evidence in this whole case. Wax told us the defense team was having trouble getting their hands on the fingerprint evidence itself. But there had been these reports in the media that the Spanish National Police have their doubts about this identification. The defense team wants the print re-examined by an independent examiner. So they go to the judge. And uh, Judge Jones says, well, give him the latent print. And Gorder says, well, I can't do that, Your Honor. I have to check with people in Washington. And Jones sits up as tall as, as, as he can possibly look at that point, you know, eight feet tall. And he looks down at Gorder and he says, that's an order. The defense team gets to have the print re-examined by an outside expert, one that the judge and prosecution also agree on. They choose a man named Kenneth Moses. One of Wax's colleagues delivers the print to Moses himself. 
and gets a, uh, you know, a briefcase, you know, sort of handcuffed to his wrist, just like you see in the movies. And, you know, he delivers the latent print to Moses. Less than a day later, Wax and his team get a call from Moses. His analysis is in. And Moses tells us, you know, sorry, guys, that's Mayfield's print. This is a potential death knell for the defense's case. Mayfield really felt it. This was almost the the nail in the coffin. I was just completely crushed. Moses gives his testimony by telephone on May 19th. But right after that... One of the prosecutors on the case stands up and says, you know, Your Honor, we've received some new information from Spain that, uh, well, casts some doubt on the identification. And we all look at each other and the swear words flying out of our mouths, uh, you know, at, at council table, you know, what is going on here? The next day, Wax gets called into the prosecution's office and finally learns what has happened. The Spanish have indeed identified the print. It belongs to an Algerian named Mr. Daoud who was known by them to have ties to Moroccans who had already been connected with the bombings. The fingerprint is not Brandon Mayfield's. In a report issued after the fact, one of the FBI examiners is quoted as saying that his heart sank when he saw the print the Spanish had identified. It matched the latent print in the upper left portion, which was a part that had always been off in the Mayfield print, though the FBI examiners thought they had a plausible explanation for that difference. Turns out, they just had the wrong guy. Stephen Wax is the one who goes to Mayfield with the news. He says, there's something we need to tell you. And I said, okay, what is it? You know? You never, you never run out of hope, you know, completely. But there was, there was a lot of hope that was taken out of my sails, you know? But Wax tells Mayfield, you're going home today. When he said that, it was, I just kind of looked at him with that look, Steve, you know, kind of like with tears welling up in my eyes, kind of saying, you know, I, I told you so. See, <laughs> I told you that wasn't my fingerprint. That very same day, May 20th, Brandon is released. He walks out the front door of the courthouse. I could see, the, you know, the light beaming in to the the glass foyer there in the front in this beautiful modern, you know, courthouse and then onto the steps. It was almost as surreal as the moment that, uh, you know, I was arrested walking through those doors onto the street. Soon after this, the FBI issues a public apology, which is rare. Mayfield eventually sues the government, alleging that they violated his civil liberties. And in 2006, he gets a $2 million settlement. Around that time, the Justice Department also issues a formal apology. They say that the FBI has taken steps to, quote, ensure that what happened to Mr. Mayfield and the Mayfield family does not happen again. So what caused the mistake in the first place? Mayfield has said he feels he was targeted because of his Muslim faith. In a press conference after the settlement was announced, 
He says, quote, The exercise of one's beliefs in a lawful manner should never be a factor in a government's investigation of any citizen. The FBI has denied the accusation that Mayfield was singled out because of his religion. That report from the Justice Department's Office of the Inspector General found no official wrongdoing and said that religion did not influence the initial misidentification of Mayfield's print. But it says that it did likely contribute to the fact that examiners didn't reconsider their identification when significant questions were raised, like when the Spanish National Police got their negative result. The report says the other big reasons the FBI didn't catch the error were, one, the fact that Mayfield and Daoud happened to have very similar fingerprints, which can happen, and two, overconfidence on the part of the FBI lab. The report also lists several specific breakdowns in the latent print examination. One is circular reasoning, that after looking at Mayfield's print, the examiners started to see ways that the latent print might match it. Cole told us that's backwards. Of course you're going to say that they're consistent, right? Because you're using Mayfield's print as, as a guide to interpreting the latent print. And also, the report says, the examiners didn't use blind verification. The later examiners knew that their colleagues had made this ID. In the wake of this case, the FBI changes their procedures, trying to address the circular reasoning problem and also introducing blind verification in more cases. Overall, this case showed law enforcement and the public that fingerprinting isn't as ironclad as we might have once thought. This just kind of breaks the the dam around this claim of infallibility and in some sense allowed people to talk about error in fingerprint identification and in forensic science generally in a more honest way. Because errors are possible. Nothing is 100%. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. This episode was produced by Julie Magruder. History This Week is also produced by Ben Dickstein, Julia Press, and me, Sally Helm. McKamey Lynn is our senior producer, and our editor and sound designers are Corey Choi and Pat Burke. Our researcher is Emma Fredericks. Our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next week. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.